Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of America podcast. I hope everybody's had a good week. I know Ian and I both have. And speaking of Ian, it's nice to see your beautiful face on the other screen and hear that voice of yours. Well, you know, Mr. Jason Johannes did tell me I have a lovely radio voice, so uh, I have to uh, use it to full effect. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. He told me I had a face made for radio and podcasting, so... That's what everybody tells us. I thought uh, no. that's complimentary. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember um, that Chris Farley character where he was a news guy on Saturday Night Live? You know, and he would do the air quotes, and he goes, "Some might say I had a face that would scare small children." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bennett Brower, I think, was the name of that character. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a great skit. Um, how have you been? I've been all right. Just uh, you know, a lot of things happening, keeping busy. Uh, you know, we got a good response on those first couple of chats episodes, so that's that's a good thing, and I'm glad people are enjoying that. And well, David, before we get into our big interview this week, the thing that we've been making everybody wait for for a uh, a litany of reasons, I do just want to say that uh, many people out there, many of the listeners and the Americans in particular, uh, really stepped it up in uh, wishing me a happy 40th birthday this past week and i really do appreciate that i mean seth and steve and and all the guys in the americans they really went all out and they recorded this elaborate video for something my wife was putting together and they you know they they recorded uh good friday with altered lyrics to reflect uh, about man, they really did me a solid and everybody really did me a solid and i i appreciate everybody that dropped me a line or anything like that really uh i really needed that and i i, I want to thank everybody you uh you are an old guy, Ian, and so uh, you know you don't know how many more of these you're going to get at your age. That's true, but I also do want to say, David, because uh, uh, it's I often take these things as red between us, but I do appreciate everything you did towards my birthday too, and I did uh, I had a great time, and I, I appreciate you being a good friend there, buddy. Oh, no problem, anytime. Yeah, the 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 video that the Amorkins did for you was was priceless. Oh yeah, I asked them to send it to me separately just so I could uh, save it and have it because it really, really was. Uh, it's touching when uh, you you make friends through this thing we've been doing, and uh, you know it's uh, they think enough of you to do something like that, and I, I think that's great. And hopefully, I can return the favor someday. We're gonna have those guys on and girls here in the future, and let them talk about their two big shows coming up in Atlanta in May, and uh, I'm gonna be there, and uh, it's gonna be fun and. Hopefully, a lot of you guys can pop in and see them. I encourage anybody that can be there to be there. And uh, I'm trying to work it out myself, but, uh, you know, uh, schedule-wise and logistically, I don't know if I can make it happen, but I'm going to do everything I can to make it happen. We do have something we want to help our buddies in the Americans with. As you know, they're a uh, Black Crows tribute band. They are looking for somebody to fill the quote-unquote Ed Harsh spot in the band. So if you know someone who plays keyboards, loves the Crows, and lives in the greater Boston area, um, it's a rare opportunity to play in the most committed and authentic Crows tribute band in the U.S. Uh, if you're interested, get in touch with uh, Seth. And his email is, let's see, it's AmoricanSeth at gmail.com. Or you can uh, hit him up on Twitter at AmoricanSeth or on Instagram. And uh, you can go online and see those guys' videos. 
They don't try to dress up like the crows. They don't try to act like the crows. They play the music of the crows, and they do it as good as anybody. Uh, matter of fact, I think I saw the day Johnny Colt was complimenting them. So, um, yeah, they're great. Play deep cuts, too. Deep cuts. Oh, yeah. And when I get up to Boston now, they're going to have to learn life vests for me, though. I've already told them. I know. I've heard. <laughs> well, they did. They were kind enough to, to, to throw out a uh, tied up and swallowed at one of their shows to me because I told them how much I like that song. So they're, they're great guys. I'm, I'm so glad we got to become uh, friends with Seth and, uh, and Steve. Oh, yeah. They're two of the greatest guys I've ever spoken with. Salt of the Earth. And um, also, um, they do have a, a, a YouTube channel. They have some cool videos, and they did a kind of a Zoom hangout. I, unfortunately, I was slinging dope at work, and but Ian got to be on it, and where they uh, premiered a, a video from their um, – Live at Daryl's house appearance, and it was twice as hard that they played, wasn't it? Uh, it was uh, Sometime Salvation. Oh, Sometime Salvation. I'm sorry. Yeah, you could tell I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a lot of fun, and I actually got to meet uh, in that Zoom hangout another member of the band who I had not previously met, and that was Raleigh, their, their Rich Robinson, so to speak. And uh, he was a, he was a very nice very nice guy, and I hope, hope to speak with him again in the future. So... Uh, if you saw the title of this episode when you clicked on it, this is going to be a very welcome surprise to everybody. First of all, we want to thank Rick Stout, friend of the podcast. He he helped facilitate uh, our interview with Sven Pippian. And, uh, you know, Ian and I have wanted him on since day one, almost two years ago. And uh, we know uh, a ton of you have. And Sven doesn't do a lot of interviews. I, I could really only find one interview with him, and that was a small interview on uh, Dean Delray's uh, Let There Be Talk podcast i think he interviewed magpies i think it was him rich and uh and mark on there but this one was a long time coming it did not disappoint it was a lot of fun oh, it certainly was uh you know uh, we've been sven has been on the top of our wish list for, for guests and also a lot of you listeners out there have always asked us when we're going to have Sven on, when we're going to have Sven on. And, and we had tried a couple of times and the timing was finally right. And, and Sven came on and it was, it was honestly great. Sven is such a, uh, he was very generous with his time. He was very forthcoming and, and, and honest. And, and we just kind of had a, a good uh, chat with him. And uh, we really think it's uh, something special that came out. And, uh, you know, also a big thank you uh, in addition to Mr. Rick Stout, also uh, Martina, uh, Sven's uh, lovely, lovely wife contributed very much in, in Sven's being on here, and we we can't thank her enough for for facilitating Sven being our guest. And uh, we hope we hope he had a great time and will join us again. I think he did. Super nice guy. Uh, we kept this one very very close to the vest. I think only two people knew, and uh, other than us, and they knew because we needed to get a question from them. So. Can I confess something to you right now? Yeah. I'm going to do this right on the show here. Yeah. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. After I told you that you had to keep your mouth shut, I told Steve Gleason before you told Steve Gleason. <laughs> <laughs> and then you came to me and you said, can I tell Steve Gleason? And I said, yeah, sure. And I quick texted him. And I said, if David's going to tell you this. Act like you haven't heard it right <laughs> Well, hey, he's a great uh, text actor. Cause, uh, I think because he's a bass player, that's why I wanted to tell him, you know. Um, yeah, so I reached out to him, and then uh, everybody on the Magpie boards knows about Jessica Cole Recco and everything being fantastic. So I reached out to her and uh, got a quick question from her. So other than that, nobody has known about this other than the people involved on the interview and then obviously uh, Rick Stout. 
new. And yeah. like I said, many thanks to him. And we're going to have him on at uh, at some point. We're um, he wants to do one on on the gear of the Black Crows, isn't it right? Yes, and uh, you know, uh, for various different reasons, we've been delayed in doing that episode, and uh, also partly because uh, I'm afraid I'm going to be in over my head on that one talking gear. But uh, I know uh, I'm, I'm, be I'm going to be, I'm gonna be like, you know, that thing you plug the guitar into. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Rick is a great guy, and uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to uh, to meet him a couple of times and, and speak to him. You know, fairly regularly via you know text and social media and that kind of thing, and uh, it'll be fun to have him on. He's a he's a very very interesting and and friendly guy. All right, everybody. So that's gonna I think be it. We need to probably uh, throw to Sven Pippi, and that's uh, something I didn't know if we'd ever gonna get to say. But uh, I, I'm very happy that we got to, and I think all of you are gonna enjoy it very much. So here's Sven. As you know, when we started this podcast about two years ago, we had a uh, wish list of people that uh, we would like to have on here. And one of the names that people kept coming back to us saying, why, why don't you have Sven on? When's Sven going to come on? We want to hear from him. It is, uh, we got him. So it is a, it's a, <laughs> real, a real honor and pleasure to welcome Sven Piffy into the podcast. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> hey, how's it going? It's a pleasure oh. to be here, actually. Well, Sven, it's been a uh, it's been a crazy uh, what eleven months now. How have you spent your time during the the shutdown? <laughs> it's been crazy, obviously. You know, I mean, it's just, it's especially difficult for musicians, or <clears throat> not not that we're the only ones suffering, but it's just obviously a, a very difficult thing for for musicians on what whatever level you're on. You know. Um, you know, even even the biggest of the big bands are, are you know aren't able to play and do what they normally do, and and whatever they're doing on the side is just sort of to make up the difference and try to hope to get you know to get to the place of being able to play again, and get together with people and, and do what we do. The best thing that I've been able to do is to focus more on music, my own music, than I have in a long time, and that's that's been a reward, rewarding thing for sure. Um, the only problem is is just not knowing what. Uh, you know what format to even bring it out on um not just recording but you know am i, am I forming a band am i going to put people on the road obviously not anytime soon and what are the situations going to be and so along with everyone else in this world it's just uh, the hardest thing is not knowing uh, how things will move forward you know, i'm sure you guys feel the same oh yeah absolutely i mean do you find it 
challenging these days you know as a musician to because of the way the record industry has gone you know there's no physical releases aren't as big and streaming has kind of taken over is it has it become more of a challenge well that was the case before the pandemic you know i mean it was a very difficult thing to 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 be a new band and you know the last project i was in was uh, the magpie salute um and you know we had i had very high hopes for what we were doing and and even on that level, we were having a very hard time and uh, just making it um, a viable, a, a viable business. Um, and you know, unfortunately, that's just part of what has to happen. It's got to be a, a viable enough business, even if that's not your focus, just to keep the whole thing going. You know, and you know, we we certainly did okay. But um, then, of course, I got some <laughs> different news before the pandemic, and you know, that was. Uh, a hard thing for me to, to, to deal with. Um, so in a lot of ways I was kind of in a pandemic of my own before the pandemic hit. Uh, mm. but uh, the, the good thing about it, as with any negative thing uh, that happens in your life, it, 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 uh, it forces you to reflect on, on where you are and what you want to do and where you want to be going. And, and as painful as it was at first, to not only lose my, the band that I was in that I was really believing in, but also the band that I spent most of my life playing with was just no longer going to be part of, uh, part of my life, um, in any way. And I, you know, that was just a tough thing for me to deal with, but, uh, having, uh, having the time, um, has, has given me the opportunity to, to look at it and I've really come to terms with it all in a way that I just wasn't expecting. It's just all in all actually been a really positive thing. Well, well, Sven, since um, you don't do a lot of interviews, and, and we're just we're so just so thankful that you that you agreed to you know come and talk with us, we kind of had some questions about your past. We wanted to uh, maybe get to know you a little bit better, if that's cool with you. Absolutely. I think it's common knowledge you were born in Germany. You came to America, and English was not your native language. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. In fact, it was my third language. Wow. Uh, my my father is German. My mother is Spanish. Um, I grew up in, in Germany. My dad was in the military, but he was in the German military. So we toured all over, all over Europe, but you know, uh, from a German perspective, it wasn't the American military. But in 1976, my father got the opportunity to work for Lufthansa German Airlines and moved to Chicago. And because my mother's sister was married to an American at that time, that was enough for us to be able to get a green card. So at age nine, I was about to turn 10. We uh, moved to Chicago from Germany and um, it was a spectacular thing for me. I tell you, as a kid from Germany to, to come to America, I mean, um, it's, it's hard for, for someone not, you know, for someone that's not an immigrant to understand what, what, what that means from this, to come to, to this country that you've heard about all, all your life and, uh, and to actually be here. And of course it was 1976 and, uh, uh, the bicentennial and in Chicago. And it was you know just a couple of weeks before the 4th of July. And I just, I had no idea what was happening, but we, we got to Chicago and there was just flags everywhere and Americans just talking about their country. And it was just an amazing thing for me to, to witness and, um, and, and last down to it at, at a young age. I was just always so appreciative of uh, getting the opportunity to, you know, to, to experience, America. Um, and, and I did at, at a young enough age to, 
have all that experience almost as an American kid, even though I, I wasn't. Um, but by the end of it, I just, I, and I still do, I feel as, a, as, a, as American as anybody, um, and sometimes more so. I have an appreciation for country means, I think, more than the average Joe, you know, and not from here, but uh, I consider myself an American through and through. <laughs> well, what's, your, <laughs> what's your, your earliest memory of music? Well, I started early in, in my family. Um, I, was, I come from sort of a musical family, and my grandmother played uh, violin in the Berlin Philharmonic, and um, my grandfather was a uh, guitarist, mainly flamenco. And so uh, my, my, my father played um, trumpet, <laughs> nothing spectacular. But my, my mother was, uh, just, just loved to sing, and they used to you know, sing, at, sing at parties. And my father was great at singing harmony, so that's kind of where I started learning how to how to harmonize um, at an early age, you know, five, six, I was already started figuring out, okay, melody's one thing, and then whatever my dad's doing is something different. I really like that. And I started understanding what, uh, you know, the relationship between melody and harmony, and then, of course, harmony being so similar to, to bass, um, bass kind of holding both of those together. And it, I just developed an early love for how music actually works um, growing up that way. But coming to uh, to America, you know, which uh, aside from England was kind of the the home of all the music that I that, that I loved, you know, popular music, say popular music from from our perspective, because there's certainly some German pop music as well, and that's not what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> uh, German pop music uh, was pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> now, 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 coming up at that time, you had to have been a fan of the Scorpions, though, right? <laughs> You know, I, I wasn't at the time, but I, I, I became, you know, once I was in the States and started listening to, you know, cause at age nine, I really wasn't into German rock music, you know, <laughs> even though the Scorpions were well on their way and doing their thing. Um, and, in, you know, even being from the same town, I, I, I had not heard of them, to be honest, until I was like 12 or 13. And, you know, um, Rocky Like a Hurricane was... <laughs> one of the school school bus, you know, rock songs that was always being played. Um, and, and I actually loved it right as a kid, you know, um, but I didn't know that they were from Hanover. And when I, when I did find that out, I was, I was, I was like, okay, well they did it. Why can't I try something like that? And it turns out after all these years, I'm, you know, I'm one of the more famous musicians coming from Hanover you know, after those guys, of course. <laughs> um, That's great. <laughs> was bass your first instrument? No, I started out playing, uh, you know, learning music on on piano and organ. My grandmother, you know, teach me a little bit of music theory, but always it was never like she was teaching me uh, like a like a school subject or something I had to learn. Or it was always about showing me how to have more fun with music, and she was great, great that way. And I just and, and enjoyed learning about music without without it being a, a chore. You know, that was uh, very important for me to you know early on just just to enjoy just to, to the love of making music and how it works and the, the playing of it and theorizing about it. It just started very early for me to just be a very interesting subject. But I, I hear so many stories of, you know, uh, other people just being turned away by music, by actually learning proper music theory early. If it's not done right, it can just turn you off to what music should be, uh, you know, cause it's, a right brain, left brain uh, marriage that has to happen to make it enjoyable. 
if you're just using one side or the other, it just kind of defeats the purpose to me. So it was, I started out with keyboard, keyboards and uh, eventually started playing guitar when I was like 12 or 13 and wanted to be in bands and that whole thing. And then uh, the first band I was in was a band called The Children, uh, which incidentally was uh, a band that uh, was in a competition <laughs> Uh, with the with Mr. Crow's Garden, which was my first run-in with uh, with the Robinson Brothers, uh-huh. was in rival high school bands <laughs> at a, uh, a band. Uh, I guess it was a band competition at uh, uh, St. Pius uh, High School here in Atlanta. Yeah. So at that, but at that in, in that band, I was playing guitar and keyboard and being the lead singer, <laughs> which when I tell people that they can't just they just can't imagine that I was doing that. But that <laughs> that was. Uh, what I did back then, and uh, just I remember my first experience with 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 Mr. Crow's Garden back then, with with Chris singing and Rich playing guitar, and you know it was a very different style at first, but I could tell right away Chris had something going on, just the way he was projecting and singing, and so we, we you know they I, I guess I should say that they they won that competition, uh, <laughs> they um they beat us, uh, but the whole thing was that afterwards we all joked that we ended up. We ended up having a larger following of females than they did, <laughs> which, was, which was bragging rights at that age, you know. Uh, we ended up uh, being friends and doing gigs together, and uh, then um, that band broke up, and some of the guys from, from the children formed a band called Mary My Hope. We had a friend of ours um, that, that was going to be the singer, and he, and he happened to be uh, going to college with, uh, with Steve Gorman, who was going to... I think uh, Western Kentucky and Bowling Green. <clears throat> so Steve Gorman uh, moves down to Atlanta to be in my band, this new band, Mary My Hope. Um, and I had just uh, been talking to Chris Robinson about maybe getting a place together because, you know, we were musicians, we needed a rehearsal space, and we thought, well, you know, if we just rented a house, um, then, you know, we'd have a, a space that we wouldn't have to pay for separately and we'd kill two birds with one stone and. And before you know, it, we had just had basically two full bands living in one house, <laughs> and and it was just an amazing experience just to be able to trade what we knew musically, and you know some of us knew certain styles of music better than others, and we were just became our own you know commune of of uh, music loving uh, students. Basically, we, we we taught each other um, just playing, you know, and in, in those days. We weren't, we weren't glued to the internet. We weren't, you know, watching TV all day or whatever. It was, you know, most of our time was, was spent playing music. And it was just some of the most uh, special times of my life when I think about it, just spending, you know, 10, 12 hours straight playing, you know, that sort of thing, which I just I can't imagine doing anymore. But <laughs> it was that kind of dedication early on, I think, that, uh, that, that propelled us, all of us, you know, you know to be musicians uh, long into the future. Um, about that time, that, that scene in Georgia was just on fire. You know, obviously you had 30, 40 miles up the road in Athens. You had uh, the B-52s and REM. And, you know, they were becoming really, really big. You had the widespread panic just now starting out around that time in Athens. And they would, of course, you know, go on to be a juggernaut. And then you had, you know, driving and crying was about to become a national act. What was the scene like around there at that time? Were 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 you got were y'all friends with these guys or like or because Steve Gorman's talked a whole lot about looking up you know to REM. 
especially those three first three or four albums. Was it the scene kind of supportive or was it competitive? Well, there was definitely a, a competition between Athens and Atlanta, but we definitely looked up to what was happening in Athens. Um, you know, later on, we would become friends with those guys. I mean, Pete Buckman and Mike Mills, and we, we'd, we'd often hang out and party, but that's, that's years later. Back in the day, they were, they were like gods, basically, to us. You know, we were young kids, and they were, you know, they were young kids, too, but just a few years older. And at that, at that age, that makes a big difference. And so, yeah, uh, we, we revered them. The way everyone in the South did at that time, it was kind of a strange thing uh, to, to have this, this art, artsy band from Athens that strikes such a chord with so many people. It's, it's a phenomenon that I still can't really wrap my head around when I think about it. But yeah, there was that, and Driving Crying was, for me, just the, the, the local band that, that showed us how to be a band, um, how to be a rock band, I should say. Was, the mid-'80s were pretty rough for... <laughs> live <laughs> music and and rock and roll in general um but there were bands doing that you know and then and, and it was kind of a crossover from punk you know like if you wanted to see a band that was playing you know guitars through loud amps in the mid in the mid 80s you probably had to see a punk band you know uh, i guess maybe a metal band of some sort but if you weren't in the metal it was going to be some sort of punk <laughs> husker du comes to mind you know uh, later on, the replacements and just you know hard-edged kind of music with, and then of course from there later on flowed Jane's Addiction and you know bands that were bringing back rock and roll in a way that it was kind of lost uh, in, in the eighties and yeah, we, we definitely looked up to those guys and and then you're right though, it was a scene that was on fire and we all you know to say we all support each other is is to put so put a, a twist on it that probably isn't real. But there was a lot more camaraderie than than anything that I've seen since. Um, but yeah, I look fondly on those on those days. I gotta tell you that first uh, "Marry My Hope" record, the Museum album, uh, that was to me that that record was very ahead of its time. It, it's such a great record. There, there were so many elements in those songs you would hear later. Like in that in that grunge sound that came a couple of years after it, uh, you know things you would hear with like Pearl Jam and Screaming Trees and so forth. Uh, do you think that Museum would have, have fared a bit better commercially had it come along slightly later than it did? Well, perhaps, or if we had just kept going, but we were definitely ahead of what we were doing. Um, and and there was there were some things that were happening, you know, that um, showed us that that was probably the case. I mean, you know, we we kind of messed up the. Our, our career path, I suppose, at that point, and not really knowing that there even was one. We were just kind of going with it. You know, we were 19, 20, 21. I, I, was the, I think I was the oldest. No, our drummer, Stevie Lindenbaum, actually was the guy that replaced Steve Gorman, was actually one or two years older than me. So, but yeah, you know, late teens, early 20s. How, what do you really know about life at that point? <laughs> not much. <laughs> <laughs> not much, right? But you think you know everything, you know. Exactly. Um, now I've heard Steve say that because he that you know he left I guess Mary my hope to join Mr. Coe's Garden, and then y'all got the record contract before they did, and he's like, uh oh, did I make a mistake? Um, you know. So talk yeah. us, talk a little bit about you know the recording of that album after y'all got signed and 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 what all went into that because y'all had a a pretty good backing from the record company, didn't you? We did. We um we ended up signing with uh, with Silvertone, which was a part of uh, RCA. Zamba music back then. Um, I guess RCA BMG 
uh, sort of conglomerate, whatever it is now. I have no idea. I'm sure it's changed a bunch, as they all do. Mm. But yeah, uh, that was an English label, and and I knew of of that label because the Stone Roses um, had, had just signed them, and so I was like, okay, these guys can maybe do something. I'd, so I was very happy about about uh, that, even though it wasn't a, a record company that was on my radar necessarily. But in uh, how can I phrase this? We we got the deal. Um, Steve had already left. I remember having a conversation with him about like you know like this is about to be final. You know, are you sure he'd want to take that direction? And um, I was just convinced he was making the wrong move. I mean, I just didn't see anything happening at that point for for Mr. Crow's Garden. And well, I think they had just changed their name to Black Crows. I'm not positive of that because from what I remember, I think George DeCoulias was involved in the actual changing of the name. So. George hasn't hadn't been around yet, so I might be wrong about that. But so we got signed. We we went to to Europe, uh, to to London, and uh, and ended up uh, doing some some recordings there in the city. But we had gotten a a, a couple weeks slot out in uh, out at Rockfield Studios in Wales, uh, in Monmouth, Wales, which I I, I was aware of just because. Um, I was a huge Queen fan growing up, and I knew Bohemian Rhapsody, Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded there. So I was like, as a kid, very, very impressed to to, be, to have the opportunity to go there um, and record. And and uh, not all of it, but, but most of it was recorded there. We uh, Hugh Jones um, produced the record, which you know he had worked with uh, Bauhaus and I Go and the Bunnymen, and that's kind of the music that I was into my early teens um, before rock and roll really kind of took back over. And so I was very impressed with, uh, with his, uh, his work on, on, or his interpretation of what our music was going to be. And I, I'm very proud of that record that we made there. Um, incidentally, 30 years later, the Magpie salute ended up uh, finishing up high water too there. Right. And that was a really, uh, great experience for me to have that 30 year anniversary of my own you know that was an, an amazing experience at, at, at such an early age uh i remember coming back to atlanta after our first tour and running into i, remember, I don't know if rich called or if i actually ran into him i think he called but rich said he's uh, they just recorded uh, their demos uh, for this new record that they were putting out <laughs> And uh, I remember meeting him. He gave me a cassette tape, and I, I listened to it, and it was just so much better than I, than I uh, than what I was expecting. I'm just and just some really really great songs. I remember uh, one that really stuck out to me was "Seeing Things." Uh, when I heard Chris's vocal on that, and the fact that they were daring to play something, you know, off meter from from the rest of the more rock and roll record. I just thought it would it showed some depth that was going to be more than just a flash in the pan. And, and sure enough, a little bit later, you know, maybe a year later, I'm not sure, but it wasn't much time. Um, that thing just exploded all over the place. And, and that decision that Steve made ended up being a different one <laughs> or having a different result. I mean, yeah, the, uh, the shake your money maker record was definitely, you know, different, you know, for what was going on at the time, but the museum album from Mary, my hope, I mean, that was really to me, you know, especially going back and listening to it again, more recently, there's a, there's some fantastic stuff on there. I mean, suicide King and it's about time and hourglass. I mean, a lot of these things could easily have fit into what was going on around like 91, 92, you know, only a couple of years after, 
And I was always curious to know why there was no second record from the band. What exactly happened there? Well, we had second and, and, and even enough material for a third record, possibly sort of, you know, either being recorded or in various stages of, of production. And we just kind of fell up, fell apart personally. I mean, mm. things were going very well for us at first. And, and at that age, it was just very easy for that to go to our heads in different ways. Um, and then having disagreements because of that. I mean, you know, egos just start to get, get into the, to, into the picture. Um, and people deciding, okay, well, I wrote this, so I'm the one that's responsible for this. And, you know, that, that kind of thinking started, you know, once, once we realized, okay, we have to get accredited for these songs and it just kind of changed the, the band. Originally we were, it was, it didn't matter who brought a song into the, into the mix. We would just all work on it and it was all our music. And I was just pretty adamant that that's the way I wanted it to be. I I wanted the, the the music to be, you know, our music as opposed to you know written by one person and everyone else just plays on it, which is you know, supposed to the regular way that most bands do operate. But anyway, so that when when we did do the, the accrediting for that first record, that that just started to separate the band into different camps because we were some of us were upset about the what the other ones were doing and it just it's just you know if we could have had a better you know vision of the future we've just stuck those things out and all we had to do is just continue on toward one or two more records and uh i think that we would have been in line with what was going on because like you said it's just a little bit early for for commercial understanding people wanted to make this either a Southern band or a goth band. And we just weren't either really, you know, we were just being ourselves and which is, you know, similar to what the, what, what the crows did early on, you know, they weren't trying to fit any niche. They were just being themselves. And but people sure wanted to put them into a niche, you know, Um, and now they're in their own niche and always have been. You're talking about, you know, the issue of writing credits. I think REM's probably the blueprint of how to avoid that. You know, it was always the four of them, whether they contributed or not. And I think that's why, you know, they stayed together so long. I mean, obviously, Bill Barry had to leave after having that aneurysm. But, you know, you don't really hear a lot of drama out of the REM camp. No. I, I, I know in Tom Petty's book, he talked about how before they signed the first album, his manager said, look, you need to make sure you get all the writing credits and that the contract, the, you know, the, the record deal is for you not the heartbreakers. Yeah. And he said, basically you need, it's going to be uncomfortable, but you need to get this out of the way now before people have expectations or whatever. And so it's kind of a shame yeah. when stuff yeah. like that, you know, contributes to a band breaking up. Cause let's say you're in Mary, my hope and you come to the, you know, you come to the studio, Hey, I've got this, I've got this melody. I've got these lyrics. And then if the drummer's like, yeah, I think we can put this fill in and you know, the rhythm guitar players, like we could do this. I mean, to some degree they're contributing to it, you know? Oh, of course. I mean, if you look on that record, you'll see my name on a few of the songs, but I just didn't think of it that way. Like, I didn't write those. I worked, you know, it was some of them, you know, those are my original ideas, but they were brought to fruition or they were brought to life by everybody. So you think, you think had Mary My Hope been able to weather the storm for another year or two and then the, the landscape of music really changed in like 91, do you think things would have turned out differently? I do think that would, that would have turned out a little differently. I just remember, that, you know, like we were already like falling apart. And then I started, I would hear, you know, Nirvana starts 
becoming really mainstream. Um, Radiohead, Pablo Honey came out. I just remember thinking, oh my God, some of those songs, those really could be Mary My Hope songs, you know, yeah. uh, at least on the second or third record if we had to advance a little bit more. Um, so that's a little frustrating, sure, to think about it, but art isn't about making, at least not to me, it, it's, not, it's not about making a successful piece of art. It's just about expression. And so if we turned that around in any way, it would have just uh, been disingenuous and I wouldn't want any part of that. You know, success is either there in art or it's not. Like, historically speaking, you know, throughout human history, I mean, it's usually a pretty bad idea financially to become a musician. <laughs> it's only been profitable a few times, you know, and, and if you're in the right circles, you know, at the right time or the right king or billionaire uh, philanthropist, whatever whatever it takes to make money, to make music or art come out, you know, there's... Um, it's usually, like I said, a, a bad business venture. <laughs> so, but, but the good thing about that is it, it keeps, it, at the end of the day, it keeps those people in the game that are truly wanting to be in the game. And it's, it's a good point. It's different than trying to do it for making it for money or for fame or any you know, of those types of more topical sort of interests that people tend to have. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think if, if we had stuck it, stuck it out a little bit longer... It, it no doubt would have, uh, I'm not saying it would have been necessarily a, a blockbuster, but we could have made a, a career out of it. Um, you know, I, I see bands like Driving and Crying, for example, that were kind of in the same, from the same scene and same, uh, you know, same basic makeup and ended up being able to, to play for years and years and, you know, not have the hugest following, but but big enough to make a living, you know depending on how you set it up and it's been, it's interesting. It's interesting. You bring them up because when you think, you know, of music, you obviously, most people go to, you know, Los Angeles as being kind of a hub or, you know, uh, New York city, you had the CBGB thing and then the South with like, um, blues musicians and country musicians, but the state of Georgia had like a 10 or 12 year run there where it was a lot going on. Obviously, 30, 40 miles up the road, you had uh, REM and the B-52s in Athens. And then uh, about this time was when Widespread Panic first started playing. They started getting big. And then you had you mentioned Driving and Crying. And then Mary My Hope gets signed. You have the Black Crows. A couple years after that, Collective Soul is from Georgia. You know, they come out. What was the scene like at that time between all of those bands? It was quite a scene. And uh so much more uh, togetherness than anything I see these days. Um, not that it wasn't competitive, because it certainly was. Um, you know, my band's better than yours, and that, <laughs> that whole thing. <laughs> but yeah, no, we, we all did get together and hang out. And it wasn't just like, let's go see them play. It was, you know, what are they doing? And then what, what are we doing afterwards? And everyone would hang out. You know, there were certain houses in uh, in in Atlanta that were you know the the musical party houses and the uh, the Oakdale house which is where Chris and I and Steve and James Hall and Clint Steele we all lived there and that was uh, one of those places like after shows a lot of people would go to our to our house and just spend the uh, the rest of the evening night morning etc in our place <laughs> I think about it. it. It sounds like a nightmare now when I think about it, but it really was fun back then. You know, to wake up and have a house full of strangers, and you know, you know some of them, but not not really. And filling your head and breakfast with them, and 
but yeah, it was a uh, de- definitely a very competitive scene. Um, um, you know, musically, but very communal uh, on a personal level. I, I I remember having just great conversations with with all these different people, and we you know, and, and we all learned from those. Absolutely. So, Mary, my hope finishes up, and then you fast forward a few years later, and uh, you get the call from the Black Crows to, uh, you know, they they had had some lineup changes, they were shaking things up a bit, and you get the call to join the band. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that all happened for you. Yeah, well, after the um, Mary, my hope dissolution, which was slow and not very ceremonious, and ended up being pretty much over and I had to, you know, get a regular job. So I was working at restaurant jobs, you know, pizza place, any kind of like non-committed, you know, anything that didn't take too much mental energy basically. <laughs> so I could still, you know, play and write and things like right. that. And I just, I didn't want to give up being a musician. Um, so the kitchen was a perfect place for me, I know, you know, to kind of put some hours in, get some, you know, get a little bit of cash to make it through the week and just kind of keep working on music and, but yeah, when uh, I saw Steve at the at, at Piedmont Park, I was uh, walking my dog, and I, we just kind of ran into each other after not seeing each other for you know several years. And this is ninety, the spring of ninety seven, because things were up, things were already happening with uh, enough for him to ask me what I was, what was going on, and he didn't ask me to 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 join yet, but he was asking what I was doing, and I kind of felt like he was feeling me out, like you know what am I up to. But then a few months later, I think it was July, maybe August of '97. They, you know, he actually did call me and ask me if I if I didn't want to try out. I don't think try out was the way he put it. It, was, it certainly wasn't an audition either. He says, "Hey, would you be into, into playing? Here's some tunes." And he gave me a cassette, like ten or eleven songs, and uh, we um, we went in and well, I listened to them and I just it, it was just it felt so natural. I just it, it it never felt like I was playing somebody else's music. It just felt like okay, I. I get this and I just it wasn't any 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 kind of a big deal I just went in and we, we started playing it sounded to me very good right away and apparently they agreed because you know after a little while playing we just kind of talking about me and the band already so I, I don't know about them actually trying out anybody else I don't think there was anybody else so I I um, ended up joining and it was just like trying to catch a train and you jump on but before you know you're you actually jumped onto a, you know, a supersonic jet, and <laughs> your face is being torn off by, by just the speed of it all. And I, you know, I, I knew of what was going on with the Black Crows. They were friends of mine. I could see that they were exploding everywhere, but I just did not have the personal experience of how, you know, what those dynamics actually were. And even in, you know, end of '97 when I first officially joined, and you know, that first tour was shown off, and it was a club tour to kind of get the band into some, you know, into working order um, was a spectacular thing for me to see. And it was bigger than anything I'd ever done because, you know, we were playing tiny places compared to what they had been playing, but just, you know, the bigger places that I was used to playing on tour with, with Mary, my hope. So, you know, clubs that are thousand, 2000, which is a big club, you know, right. and, uh, but for them, a very small venue, you know, so these bands, and they were just, packed to the hilt because everyone was trying to get in and it was just such a smart thing to play a smaller venue than than your popularity you know i remember uh mary my hope got a chance to, to tour with uh jane's addiction um on uh, the very early nothing shocking and it was the same sort of thing where they were playing 
tiny clubs. I want to see them at the Nick in Birmingham. And, you know, there was maybe 800 people inside and, you know, like that's 300 over the fire limit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But 3000 or more outside that couldn't get in. And it's like those people that couldn't get in that made it such a legendary thing. Like it's everyone, you know, saying, well, what happened inside? You know, I could, I couldn't make it in or, or then people would lie. No, I actually did get in. But that, you know, I, I bring that up because that's what it reminded me of playing these super packed clubs for a whole tour. Um, it was just an amazing experience for me. It was bigger than anything I had ever seen, but I was also aware that it was much smaller than anything they had been doing recently. So I, I don't know. I think maybe my excitement at that time kind of gave them some, gave them a second wind as well. Um, it was a very fun time for me, um, the beginning of that for sure. Well, before we get into kind of, you know, by your side and that tour and, you know, and Jimmy Page and stuff like that, talk to us a little bit about Ed Harsh as the person and Ed Harsh as the musician. It's kind of funny because when you hear Ed talk, you just wouldn't know. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, no, yeah. I could just go on forever with that. He's just such a lovely person. But at the same time, one of the one of the more musically intelligent, well, just actually just intelligent period. I mean, you just wouldn't know it talking to him for, you know, for more than if you talk to him for less than a minute, you might not know how brilliant that guy actually is. You know, I think he's from the Ukraine. His father is a scientist. Um, he just has a very different brain. Uh, you know, he, he can, he can floor you by playing, you know, some simple boogie woogie or just go straight into Chopin or, you know, Beethoven and, you know, without even making it seem weird, I could he, he, to me look just as natural playing both, and that's just just a remarkable thing when I think about it. And just one of the funniest guys I've ever been around. At the same time, he's I, I miss him dearly, and it's hard for me to talk about him without tearing up a little. I sure do miss him. I tell you that. Um, it seems like like Ed was the fan favorite, so to speak. Like, it seems like, uh, you know, a lot of people really reacted to Eddie. Was he aware of how, how popular he was amongst the fans? I think he might've been aware, but it didn't matter to him. He, he just loved talking to people. And, and I, I, there was such a weird separation that I wasn't used to. Like in Mayor, my hope, you know, we just, we just were never that popular. I mean, maybe in a few shows here, you know, like in, in Atlanta or in New York or London or something, we'd, you know, we'd have a packed house. And it'd be hard to get backstage and we'd have some separation. But, you know, if a fan wanted to talk to me, I'd be more than happy. I always, I always did. And Ed was the only one in that band that would actually take the time afterwards, after a show, and like, you know, go talk to the fans. And I realized, you know what, that's, that's more like the way I, I want to go about it, too. And I just... I just I, I loved his approach uh, to dealing with with the, the madness of, of I guess what fame is even on that level, and I started to experience that a little bit. Like suddenly, people knew my name and knew who I was only in context. You know, like if, if I'm walking up to Soundcheck in whatever city and the fans already there, like oh that must be the new kid Sven or whatever. You know, the new guy. So suddenly, people know my name and cared, and I was, but. It, I realized I, I'm no different. And so it just, it, and plus I, I, I'd gone through the mirror, my hope saying a little bit enough to know, you know, people want to be with you when you're in it and they don't really care when you're not. And I just, I, I just, I never took that, that fame thing seriously. I just, it didn't make any sense to me. And I, and I think that's the way Ed was too. It just, 
you know, there was a bit of a mentality of a, the velvet rope, you know, keeping, keeping people on one side of the velvet rope and, uh, you know, the band on the other to give the air of mystery. And that may be a successful proposition. It's just not the way I am. I just am who I am. And that's that. But for better or worse. Speaking of the fan dynamic, if you told me, I'm looking out my window right now, and if you told me Beyonce was at my neighbor's house, would you like to go meet her? No, nah, it's a hard pass because she means absolutely nothing to me and never will, you know? Like, for instance, anybody that's been in the Black Crows, um, and I, I told Chris this when I met him, I said, you know, your music has made the bad times not quite as bad, but it's made the good times that much better. And so, like, I feel like, especially people like us and, and the people that listen to this podcast, have a real connection because the music meant something. The personalities don't matter. The you know the the, the band dynamics don't matter. Um, you know, there's plenty of musicians that have opinions on things that I, I could care less about. I want to you know I want to hear about the music. What's it like having that connection with people that really appreciate your music and and how they relate to it? And like you know, we've all taken off and and flown all over the country and driven all over the country to see you guys. Is, is that something that like really resonates with you when you think about it? Because you've had you've meant something. Your music has meant something to make somebody take off work and you know fly around the country to see you. It meant more and more to me over the years. At first, it just it just felt like it was misplaced, sort of uh, like people really wanted to tell Chris how much they loved him, but they couldn't get to Chris, and so they saw me and I was available, and they said, "Hey, you know what? You're that's the way I thought of it at first. It's like, yeah, well, I'm just a guy that they were able to talk to, <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but uh, but then." it just started happening more and more over the years. And I started realizing, no, actually I think they do dig me as well. And I'm at least my part of the expression, whatever that means to them. And, and that means something to me. That means that, that I'm at least not failing in bringing across what I wanted to bring across, which is just the, my performance of a song that I didn't write, but I completely put my heart and soul in and believe from beginning to end. And that that has some kind of an effect and at least partially, you know, I'm, I'm only, one part of the band, but enough people have told me that over the years for me to start to believe it. And, and, and when I started to believe it, it, it dawns on me, you know, then that's really something for me to be thankful and appreciative about. And, and I am, um, and I try to tell people that as much as I can, I, you know, it's not, it's not easy always to, to take that time after a show when you're tired, but to, to talk to fans as much as they want to talk to you. I, I try to do my best, you know, and, um, but sometimes it's just, you know, more than you want to deal with at the time. So when you join the band, uh, the band's working on uh, the material for, for By Your Side. Talk a little bit about what the what working on those songs were like for you. Like, what were some of your favorites? What were your favorite ones to play and, and that kind of thing? Well, By Your Side itself, the song, which originally was uh, If It Ever Stops Raining, right. was one of the first ones I, I, I got... Uh, I got to hear, um, and I think it was on that first cassette um, when I tried out. And uh, I, I've always liked that song, even when it was changed later on uh, in, in the Buyer Side sessions to actually be called Buyer Side. The, the riff to Heavy, um, before it was called Heavy, um, you know, there, just about every song on that record means something to me because of how, you know, how formative it was in, in my beginnings with that band and my experiences with them. There's not a song on that record I, I don't like or don't appreciate for what it is. I, I, I don't necessarily appreciate the end result of the record as much, um, but every individual song I, I really do like. Um, as a record, just looking at that cover, uh, 
is is it's a source of embarrassment to me. I mean, I, it's the most ridiculous picture of me that I've ever, you know, that I can think of ever um, having been released. I'm sitting <laughs> on some sort of glowing golden orb, and I, you know, I had zero, you know, editing <laughs> strength or power in those days, so I just had to go with whatever they chose. Right. Which probably was, you know, does Chris look good? Does Rich look good? Okay, done. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and, and by the time it got down to me, it was just an afterthought. So the, there's many things about that record that I don't like, including some of the production value, um, you know, the, the, the cover. And, but all in all, I think it's a very underrated record. After you guys do uh, the tour for By Your Side, you hook up with Jimmy Page and play some shows. Is was that like the pinch me moment of all pinch me moments when you're looking over at Jimmy Page? It, it really was, um, and I might have actually tried to pinch myself too. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain moments that I remember live that I'll just never forget. One of them being right before the solo and what is and what should never be. Jimmy looks over to, to get the timing right so he can start the solo and just in front of a huge hushed well excited but then momentarily hushed crowd for the beginning of the solo uh those little moments i'll I'll just i'll I'll never forget him looking over and playing the part essentially of john paul jones as best as i could hope to try yeah that's that whole time was so special for me um which made it so difficult uh to to leave because i was asked to leave right after that pretty much um without going into details of all that. It was a difficult thing because I, I went, I just accomplished so much with Jimmy and then it all kind of fell apart very quickly. And uh, without going into details about that, it was a, it was a tough time. I loved every moment of playing with Jimmy. Um, and it was so important for my musical education to, to see Jimmy as, as a peer almost. I mean, he, I say almost because obviously he's not a peer, <laughs> um, but we were playing in the same rehearsal space, trying to you know deconstruct and reconstruct these songs. He he, he just uh, felt so on the level. Um, we were you know so eye to eye. He he was not pretentious or didn't need to prove who he was. Um, just one of the more gentlemanly people that I that I've ever met. Just a just a fantastic guy. The rehearsals were were so amazing. I, I, you know, I was able to, to go back and look at some, uh, some video on YouTube. I'd, I'd never seen videos of these rehearsals, but there are some posted and I, I just, I can't believe that time. The videos don't do the, the moment justice, obviously, but just being in those spaces to me was almost more, more exciting than playing in front of people. Cause it was so, so laid back and, and you know, I say laid back. It was, it was laid back, but also incredibly tense um, in, in in my own head. Right. The scene was laid back outside, but what was happening inside my head was like, okay, what? Would you, you just correctly or kind of made it through the last song, and now, you know, I got all these other songs to figure out and learn and play, and how's that going to work? And, and do I really know this? And so I was nervous inside my head, but he made us all feel so comfortable and just like we were playing music like we always had it's just a bunch of guys getting together and playing music it doesn't matter who wrote it and how iconic these songs are and so he made it possible for us to kind of like get off the uh, you know the nervous train of can i actually do this and let's and as opposed to just you know let's just do this actually curious to know uh, to that end because i know as a as a very big fan of the black crows when i would go to see them 
when you hear certain songs, there's certain points in the song that you're you're looking to hear because you're so familiar with them. And I know, obviously, those Led Zeppelin songs are you know have been around a long time, and people are very familiar with them. Was there any sort of directive to to stick to as they as they were on the on the records, or did you have like a uh, were you given a lot of liberty to to do your own thing with them? I think there was probably more liberty than I maybe would have acknowledged back then, but because because Jimmy was just way cool about it all, but I, I just took it so seriously. I just wanted to get it like as close to the original as possible, and then we can move from there. So that was my my perspective on it was just to to give it the the honor it deserves, the the respect it deserves. So yeah, I mean, like I said, there may there may have been more leeway, but I just didn't I didn't want the leeway. I just I, right. I was happy to play those songs the way they are, you know, as best as I could try to hope to to play, you know, along the lines of John Paul Jones, which is an impossibility, but <laughs> but uh, sure was fun trying. <laughs> well, um, after that, Sven, you you take a you take a little break from the Crows and and you come back in '05, and obviously much has been made of, of, you know, Oh five, Oh six to me, Oh five, Oh six just went to a whole other level. What was it like finally getting to share a stage with Mark Ford for the first time? Oh man. I loved playing with Mark. I, I uh, obviously was always a fan of his playing before then, but then to actually be on the same stage and, you know, I had played with oddly, who's a fantastic musician. That's you know, certainly nothing against, against his playing, but just to play with the guy that would that actually put the guitars on the original records, save for the first one. But, uh, he, you know, we just got on instantly. Um, it felt like, it felt like the old band that somehow I was privy, privy to be part of. <laughs> like, like suddenly it was the old black crows, except for me, you know, essentially. But I, since, since I've known those guys so long, it kind of felt natural to everybody. I mean, not not Mark and Ed. I didn't know them since I was kids, but but already been in a band for years with Ed, and now Mark, you know. And there's Mark are, Mark and I are very different people, uh, personality wise, maybe, but musically we're so incredibly similar. Like, even though we're on different instruments, I just kind of uh, whatever he plays, I'm like, yeah, if I was a guitar player, that's what I would have tried to play too, you know. And I just feel like his musical ideas and the directions he naturally goes into is it's the natural inclinations that I have myself, stylistically speaking and, and energetically. So um, that was just such an honor to, to, to play those songs with Mark on, on, on stage as well. And it was a very productive, powerful time. I, you know, the band was really rolling or um, firing on all cylinders at that point. Um, you know, I've, I've lived under the uh, the impression that you know most fans talk about the golden years, you know, and some people say well ninety three, ninety four, but most people seem to say you know ninety five, ninety six, maybe even early ninety seven as being the, the the golden years, so to speak, and 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 they maybe were. I've I've no idea, and I know the band was was an amazingly powerful thing at that time, but we you know when I joined in ninety seven and and, and from then on, you know, that was kind of a re reformatting of the black crows. But then when Mark came back, it was sort of getting back to what the band was originally format wise, except for me being a different bass player. And for a couple of years there, it was, uh, it was, I would have to agree with you. It was 
probably the band at its best. One of the things that was such a big difference from your first stint in the band to the second stint in the band is much more varied set list, sometimes some really obscure covers. Like I'd have to go look up, you know, who, who originally did it. And, and obviously a lot more jamming. There was a lot of jamming in 0506. Was that the first time you'd ever really been in a band that jammed like that? And and if so, is that kind of nerve wracking at first or as a, you know, as a good of a musician you are, is it just something else you figure out how to do? Uh, it's, it's always something I've, I've loved to do. Um, and, I just hate to use the word jamming because it just gives image, you know, gives an image, gives a picture that I don't really like. It's kind of dumbs it down, but, but spontaneous playing, you know, um, without any preconceived notions of where you're going. It's it's just, I've just always loved that, that aspect of playing. It, It depends on what musicians you're playing with, you know, and it's not a matter of a good or bad musician. It's just some are better geared for, for that sort of playing and some are better geared for reproducing, something exactly every time you know the difference between a classical pianist and you know reading music but playing you know playing it exactly as it should be and that's the way it's that's supposed to work you, you can't really say that that's a better or worse musician than you know someone who's been a free-form jazz player who's, who's not sticking to any rules and but is also great in his own right you know so it's not a matter of better or worse um but i i'd always been in bands that that at least attempted that. And, and my natural way of playing music before we, you know, if, if I get together with some guys and, and play and before we play any particular songs, it's, it's just always about, let's just make some noise and see where it goes. And uh, to do that live in front of people, sure. It's like bigger crowds than I was used to, but I, I just, I loved it. I, I loved the, the danger of it. Like if <laughs> things could just completely fall off and people don't know how close we've come to, well, not just close. There were some actual train wrecks <laughs> that, that did happen on stage, but a lot less than you would think. You know, I think that that's that's probably the most attractive thing about music, and, and particularly live music, is is spontaneity. It kind of, if you're there witnessing that, you know, you're the only one that's going to see that, and that may be just a moment that happens just once, and it can never be replicated. That's the exciting part to, uh, about music to me. I don't know if you feel the same way. I do, uh, I do, and that's that was what. Uh, you know, you mentioned all the covers and uh, all the jamming that's going on, that was going on in 05, 06. You know, kind of frustrating sometimes to me, you know, that we just kept changing the set every every night, completely different, which makes for an interesting uh, set list, but it makes everything much more difficult and complicated, you know. And, and uh, you know, we would do tours with other bands without mentioning names, but you would see the same set list every night. And I would thought to myself back then, like, oh, man, how comfortable and easy would that be just to be able to play and rely on the same set? But that's exactly it. It would be too comfortable and easy, and I think there would be no energy because of that, at least this band, you know. We, we, we've we had Charity and Mona both on here, and they talk about... How you are know, they? I, I miss them. No, they're as sweet a human beings as you'll ever meet. I mean, obviously, you know that. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Um, but they both have talked to us about at times, especially on that run, how the band would get so locked in and, and Chris would be so into it and, and, and everybody was just dialed in. Mona has played with everybody and she talked about how there were times she said it felt like the entire band was levitating. What's it like to be plugged into that? Because I mean, it's something that we're never going to get to experience. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's also not something that I could describe in words. You know, that's the thing about the experience. I could tell mm-hmm. you about it, but that's only going to get you 10% there at, at best. Um, but I'll try. It's such an, uh, such an extraordinary experience. To, because it's a combination of, you know, I mentioned the, the dangerous element of playing live, playing something you've never played before live in front of people and jamming and going to different different directions and the fear of the train wreck and that energy mixed with the, the audience's excitement and and the musicianship that you feel around you and maybe you're maybe you're not having the best night but then you look over and. Eddie's doing something insane on the keys and it just re-inspires you and makes you realize, okay, this is right here, right now is where I need to be. Don't, don't think about how you didn't do what you wanted to do in the last song or how you might not perform on the next one. This is the one right here. And it's not even the beginning or the end of the song. It's just right in the middle. The right here, right now means this measure right now, you know, and to be brought back to that kind of right here, right now, it's been a wonderful thing for my life uh, in, in general, just, to forget about the past and future sometimes and just kind of just be here and just be and enjoy. And that's kind of the, the most spectacular aspect of it is when you get past that fear and it, it, it dissolves away into, in, in, in all your worries and fears and regrets, all the, all that vanishes and you're just in this magical place uh, with other musicians that you love and, and fans that, you know, on the most part seem to get it, you know, that was always surprising to me, the, the number of people that weren't bored. I mean, I'm sure that we lost countless people by, <laughs> by, playing, by playing jams that, you know, for people that just wanted to hear the hits, you know, which is right. a big part of the struggle of, that I remember, you know, over the years with the Black Crows is, well, which way do you go with that? Do you, do you reproduce the hits that people want to hear or do you do, you, uh, do something new? And that, that's been a different answer with every incarnation of the Crows, you know. That experience you're describing uh, seemed to be kind of the foundation for what would ultimately be the Magpie Salute, uh, particularly on that first tour in 2017. It seemed like everybody was was together and there was some real levitating moments, so to speak, and, and everybody seemed to be on the same vibe. I mean, how was that first tour for Magpie? That's interesting you say that because, you know, it was all the same dynamics, but without the fear. So it was that same kind of excitement and we don't know where we're going and we might fall down, but it was fearlessly. So, you know, and, and fearless is a, is, is a, is a great attribute, but so can, you know, as far as bringing art across, fear is also very powerful um, and, and not exclusively, but, but if you have some fear in there, that's also, you know, I'm not trying to deride that aspect of it, but the difference for me was just, uh, was just that fearlessness of the, you know, there was no negative energies. And, and so, you know, everywhere I looked around as I, as I'm playing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing smiles and, and, as opposed to like feared, fearful concentration. Um, <laughs> and, and that lightness and, you know, as long as I've known Rich, I just looking over and seeing him smile, you know, not just once in a while, but every night, at least in the first couple of years of that, which just made my, you know, my heart shine, made, made me smile. Um, it, it just felt that way, and it felt like uh, people appreciated that too. Um, listening to a reaction after songs of us playing and, and people being into and, and understanding and feeling our positivity, that of course turns into a positive feedback loop because we feed off of that, and, and it goes on from there, and it was, you know, a really beautiful thing. 
which makes it doubly sad for me that it had to, that it had to end so quickly. The the yeah. one the one show I saw of Magpie was one of my it's one of my favorite musical moments. The one, was, yeah. Well, the I only got to go. To, yeah, it was at um, <laughs> it was at a House of Blues in New Orleans. It just felt like it felt like there was no barrier between the band and the fans. It felt like everybody yeah. that was there was there for the same reason. This isn't about seeing a big production or you know uh, a bloated rock band. This is about a mutual admiration between the band and the fans. For instance, when I saw you guys play, y'all played Don't Wake Me, and I think Rich said this first time he played it in like 25 years, and people knew the song, yeah. you know, and that, yeah. that and it was it was just such a cool experience, and I've, I've become, you know, friendly with Matt Slocum, and he's talked about how it was just such a collective and how much fun it was, and I'll be completely honest with you, Sven, I have a hard time listening to High Water 2, not that I don't think it's a great album. I have a hard time listening to it because we're never going to get to see that played like that. Yeah. To, to, you know, that that's that's kind of a sad thing, but on a positive note though, that those tours were just so good for the fans and it got to hear you know, you'd go and you'd hear one or two of the hits, you know, Sting Me or Remedy or something like that, but we got the deep cuts and you got Mark got to sing and Rich sang and you know obviously John, you know, sang a lot. Just from like a, a getting back to the basic standpoint, how much fun was that? It was so much fun. I guess the end result of that was just that there was just not enough of those people to come out and enjoy it. And that's not to say that they wouldn't have, because I believe that they would have, because it's, it's such a positive experience, and people are going to go back another year, and then they'll bring a friend the next time, you know. And that just it just would have grown, I think. But for whatever reason, it just wasn't uh, enough to make it viable at the time. Um, but it was a, a beautiful experience to be able to do that. You mentioned Matt, um, just being at, uh, in, in Woodstock doing that, that first, uh, magpie salute record, you know, up at the barn and, well, not the barn, not, not Levon's barn it was, uh, the, the, the barn that we recorded at in Woodstock at very close to Levon's place, about a mile down the road actually. But, you know, just to, to watch Matt and Eddie in the same keyboard, a cubicle, playing and working on, on some of these songs. And it was just a beautiful thing. Like there was no egos. Like, you know, Eddie could have been like, Hey, you know, these, these are my keys, you know, you play after me or whatever, you know, but it was not like they got on so, so well right away. I mean, that's a great guy. And of course they were going to get along, but, but just the, the lack of egos was just so uh, palpable. And that made everyone, you know, just right away feel better and positive about everything that we were doing. I think Rich felt very freed at the time, too. I know I did. Just a difference, difference of dynamics. But that's not to say that that couldn't have been um, rekindled. And, you know, now with uh, the brothers getting back together, I'm, I'm hoping that that, that gets uh, better for them, that they can just be comfortable around each other and, and enjoy what, what they've created. You know, who ends up being a part of that or, or who's, who's not a part of that is not a part of my thinking you mentioned you mentioned Ed uh, again, and, and, and unfortunately Ed didn't get to to participate in in any of the the Magpie, you know, outside of that that original thing at at, at Applehead. I saw the Magpie several times, and I was fortunate enough to be at the very first show at the Gramercy in New York. Oh, uh, yeah. And I have to tell you that of all the shows I've seen by any man anywhere, it's the 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 single greatest musical moment I've ever seen live is that intro film they did about Ed 
and the intro yeah. to descending and then you guys dropped the curtain and went right into it i mean that's just such so powerful and it seemed to be that's really what the magpie was all about that real emotional connection between like david had said before between you guys and the fans and it kind of was one big collective and it's a shame that it couldn't carry on it is a shame um and when you think about it, that that first show was in a lot of ways the last show um, at the same time because it just wasn't going to continue on the same way without Ed. And th- and I don't mean that in any sense towards Matt. I mean, because it, it wasn't just about the Magpie salute. I mean, the passing of Eddie is also, in, in a weird way, the, the, the death of the Black Crows, even though he's not an original member and even though other keyboard players did a fantastic job later on and it's not like been impossible without him but you know that's already like some sort of some sort of death um that that all of us felt even though it was just his passing you know it just was intrinsically sad from the very get-go and and beautiful at the same time because that's what eddie would have wanted to just go out there and play and make people happy you know that's because that makes you happy you know um as brilliant as he was he Eddie, Eddie was also a very simple guy in that sense. Like, just just do what feels good, man. You know, um, that's making people happy for him. One of the one of the things that came out of uh, our interview with Mark a couple of weeks ago was uh, we've heard some rumblings that you and John and Mark possibly had something cooking, and uh, Mark confirmed that. Kind of how far along is that process? I'll, I'll confirm it as well. We are um, working together. It's just very slow going at this point um, because we can't actually be together um and that's what music is about to me is, is being together and, and although technology exists for us to be able to uh you know send songs back and forth it's it's waiting for the getting together um and maybe that's going to happen sooner than later i mean the way things are going I'm, I'm hoping that we can i just have no timeline yet uh, or or any any idea about the progress is that except that we have got the potential of lots of really great songs if we just work on them a little more I love those guys and I love working with them and I, I hope that we can make it happen. I just, I hope for us and, and, and for this world that um, music comes back in, in, in the strong way that it needs to for, for the sake of society, really. It just would be a different world without that, wouldn't it? Yes, it, it would. I, have you guys considered, like, uh, in the meantime, doing some kind of, you know, like a lot of uh, other acts have done, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, quarantine type sessions or things like that you know something uh virtual just to just to bide the time you know yeah we've we've considered it but uh, i mean maybe maybe an aspect of recording on that sense but as far as virtual playing live it it, it just that made sense to me maybe in the first part of this pandemic it just doesn't make sense to me right now i i i just it's a facsimile you know it's not the real thing and right I just as soon wait for the real thing. Um, that's hoping that it actually will happen. If, if, if it just turns out that the music industry is broken and it only, you know, the biggest of the biggest bands are able to play, which is the way it's looking. It's, it's a tough game out there. But if that's the case and there's no way of playing these songs any other way, then yeah, okay, then, then we'll go to the, the lesser facsimile thereof. Well, um, I, I am I am very fortunate being a pharmacist that I've already been fully vaccinated. And uh, yesterday I bought tickets to see uh, Blackberry Smoke and the North Mississippi All Stars in Birmingham. And um, what, what, what when is that show? It's you know? sun. It's Off Sunday. Hands? Sunday, April the twenty sixth. Okay, and um, that's one I want to go to. That's not too far. 
but the the thing is, like, I, I even like messaged. Uh, I, I mean, we had Britt on here and, and Charlie, and I messaged uh, Britt yesterday, guy. and I was just like, man, you don't understand. Like, when I hear the first chord of live music, like, there's a legit chance I'm gonna like tear up, you know, <laughs> because yeah. I, I've missed it, missed it so much. And um, getting back to the thing with John and and and, and Mark. I know there is a hunger for that just because of people we have on here that are fans. Uh, I see it on the message boards. I think it would be a, I think it would be a really, really cool thing uh, to hear. But um, I, I know we're, we're all very much looking forward to that. All right, Sven. So one of the things that uh, we like to do every now and then at the end, just have like some rapid fire questions to you. So like just kind of the first thing that pops into your mind. What do you think? Okay. All right. What is your favorite Black Crow song to play that you did not record? Uh, that I did not record myself. No, that that you that you uh, weren't on you weren't on the album. Yeah, on the original yeah, recording. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, this is uh, probably not the most popular answer, or not the coolest answer, but my favorite song to play has has always been uh, "Thorn in My Pride," um, and it's just such a majestic piece and uh, and my introduction to it was maybe different than the fans i don't know i just I've, I've just always loved that and you know not to say that people don't like that song they obviously do but i think it's just been played so much that it, it may be uh not a fan favorite anymore um but it's just always been one of my favorite ones to play another one you know pretty much anything off of southern harmony i'll tell you that i'm not a big fan of most or you know that's not a fair thing to say. I, 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 there's a few songs on Shake You Moneymaker that I that I enjoy playing, but they're just not, not on the same level that songs on Southern Harmony. You know, um, especially with Mark in the band, even with 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 some you know with Magpie playing these songs, having Mark playing <laughs> playing sometimes Salvation, even 30 years later, it was it was a spine tingling experience standing next to next to the guy that actually played that solo. You know. So yeah, those you know, like I said, anything on 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 Southern Harmony. There's so many. I I, I got I put myself into every song that was played. So I, I, even if I wasn't my favorite song, if it was on the set list, I was going to put my best foot forward on that. You know, I like a lot of songs on By Your Side. Um, I love playing them live. We didn't. We ended up playing them. You know, we ended up not playing them as much um, as some of the other records, uh, except for a couple of songs. But uh, I they always seem to me to to uh come across better than expected i mean maybe you know they're not the most popular songs of the black rose uh, uh catalog but they seem to have gotten a good response every time we play them i mean except for some noticeable some notable exceptions but for the most part yeah so along those lines what was your favorite black rose tune that you know wasn't a fan favorite that i know wasn't a fan favorite yeah that you that you particularly liked yourself well, it's not one of my favorites, or it's in fact I, I I hate it on a level that it's hard to explain. But there was just something really special and crazy about I Ain't Height, um, and I I learned so much about myself having to step up and start that baseline and and have people look at me like, what is he doing? And and it you know I it it was the most embarrassing thing for me you know, to like step up and say, okay, and then start a song. And they're like, you know, I don't start that many songs. <laughs> and when I did, like to have that be the, the beginning of it, um, you know, I just, I, I, I developed uh, some strength there that I didn't know 
I had. It's, um, it's funny about that tune because it's got such a strong bass line. It has one of Rich's best lead guitar solos ever, but yet nobody seems to like the song that was in the band except maybe Chris. I don't know, but strange. Well, I, I actually, I, I would probably be number two in that. I, I, I appreciated the, the humor in it. I mean, it was <laughs> kind of a tongue-in-cheek from the, from the very beginning. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's the thing with humor. You know, once you have to explain it, it doesn't really cut across the same way, you know. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, it's the same with humor and music. If it's not obviously a joke, then, you know, who's the joke on? I think at the end, that joke was on us. All right, Sven, I promised uh, I promised one of our friends that plays in a Black Crows tribute band, the Amorkins, that I would ask you about your bass line and some of the runs in the Magpie Salute song, Omission, because he thinks it's just brilliant what you were doing in that. Can you expound a little bit on, on your playing on that one? I, You know, it was, it was one of those rich riffs that I, I had heard you know, they had, there was a version of that song that uh, that uh, was a demo, uh, I suppose. So I'd heard that riff, and and Rich was kind of just playing the the roots on bass, to kind of uh, just kind of give a demo feel for you know for the song to give somebody an idea of how the song goes. But I just kind of just just started playing it, playing it a little differently, and hearing the you know the opposite space from what Rich was doing. And you know, Mark, of course, was integral at that time too, and he found even more space after. After I put my bass down, I, which I, I love his guitar in that song, it's crazy. But but yeah, that's it's, it's a matter of finding the space and uh, that Rich wasn't occupying, and also uh, you know and give it credence. I spent a lot of time over the years playing along with Rich, you know, um, on, on a lot of riffs. That's just the way they were written and whatever. But some of the more more beautiful and more powerful things happen when you when you go away from you know just doubling each other. Um, and, and complimenting each other, which is the you know the, the beautiful nature of music. You have to play apart from each other to actually play together. You play two together, and then you're not playing together anymore. You know. One last question: Who is your favorite bass player of all time? <laughs> Just one last question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, like, like that's an easy answer. Uh, you know what? I don't have a favorite bass player. I used to, and I just I. I started with Paul McCartney, um, and and he's the be all end all for from a musical perspective on bass playing for me. But there's so many different aspects of, of bass playing. You know, it, for me, it flowed from Paul McCartney to the other extreme would be English music. You know, John Entwistle, The Who, John Paul Jones, Led Zeppelin. It took me a long time to appreciate Bill Wyman, but now he's on that tier with me too. I just I just always thought of the Stones music wrong and in terms of bass you know like yeah well all the good bass lines you know it must have been keith playing those or whatever you know and that's a bunch of horse crap i mean there are there are those songs where, where keith did play but bill bill wyman is just one of those elusive it's very difficult to play a rolling stone song to make it sound like the rolling stones without bill wyman that's just my opinion on that i would um, agree <laughs> yeah uh carl radel one of the most underrated bass players of all time, you know, Derek and the Dominoes, Bonnie Delaney, hugely influential on me. As I, I, when, when I started paying attention to him playing and it just made me feel like, Oh my God, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. That's, uh, you know, and he, you know, he famously played behind the amp so people wouldn't even look at him. You know, he's a very shy guy. So I love that, 
dichotomy of having such a powerful bass player being so shy, even though he's playing the coolest freaking bass lines. Um, I just, I love that dichotomy. I think that's beautiful. But yeah, you asked for one favorite bass player. It's just a, not a fair, not a fair question. Um, those are the ones I grew up with. I mean, I, I appreciate a bass player who doesn't, who plays for the song and doesn't play for his own uh, ego. You know, there are people that try to wow you and, you know, I just think that's boring. It's boring and, and it has nothing to do with the power of music to me, which is the, the power of music comes from the, the, the communion of people rather than any individual, any, uh, any individual virtuosity. Say that three times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I stand on that. I mean, there's certainly, you know, Paul McCartney isn't technically anywhere near the top of, of, of bass playing, but I wouldn't put anyone above him, if that makes sense. So that's kind of the way I feel about that. Sven, as we, uh, as we wrap this up, we want to tell you, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. It means the world to us that you trusted us to, to, to come on. And I think it's uh, important for you, you know, you said you've come to this realization over the years, but I think it's important for you to know how big of a part you played with this band and with the experiences that the fans have. I hope you enjoyed your time, and, and, I, and I hope, like I said, I hope you uh, sometimes sit back and realize what a big part you played with the band and the fans and, and the live experience. And coming from me and Ian, who are big fans, uh, just we just can't thank you enough. Well, thank you so much, and, and it, it means the world to me to to know that there's people out there that appreciate my, my little part that I played. And uh, it makes looking back on on my career a, a more positive experience, you know, better than some of the negative and dark thoughts I've had over the last year about what does it all mean? Was I ever in the band? <laughs> is, is there even such a thing as the Black Crows? Was there ever? You know, these crazy questions that come when when it's, when it's thrown in your face the way it has been. Um, but I've, I've come to terms with it, and I just... To know that there's people out there that enjoy the music and enjoyed my part in it, that just makes me feel better about everything. You know, I, I wish everybody the best, and I wish you guys the best, and have me on again. I, I, I love talking to you guys. <laughs> yeah, we would love to have you back, and you're welcome anytime, Sven. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, we kind of tipped you off to this uh, ahead of time, but uh, we typically let our, our guests uh, select the playout song. So uh, what song you got for us to uh, close this thing out? Well, I'm going to throw you for a little bit of a loop, because I'm okay. not going to choose one of my songs or one of the Black Crow songs. I'm going to choose T-Rex, Ballrooms of Mars, if you have that. Of course I do. It's just a little inside message. All right. Then Ballrooms from Mars it is. I definitely have that big T-Rex fan. So, again, thank you, Sven, (laughs) for for joining us. And to play us out, here's T-Rex with Ballrooms of Mars. Stay tall, everybody. You gonna look fine. You're brown for dancing. You gonna trip and glide all on a trampoline. Stacked with roses and wind and cars and people of the past. I'll call you thin just when the moon sings. Place your face in stone upon a hill of stars and grip to your arm. Of the 
with a changeless madman We'll dance our lives away in the pool of Mars You talk about day I'm talking about nighttime When monsters call out the names of men Bob Dylan knows And I bet Adam Free did There are things at night That are better not to behold You dance With your lizard leather boots on And pull the strings that change The faces of men
joy.